Well, we need to shift gears. Second part of a nine-part study on the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. I'm putting on my teacher hat this morning. So you need to put on your student hats. Right? So put them on right now. One member said, it's good that we're going through FOF because she has, last time she took FOF and heard these teachers was when she was 16 years old. So quite a long time ago. Some of you might have been maybe that, that, you know, many years since you've, uh, put on a student hat, but we need to for this topic, for this subject of our study. Last week we, we talked about the purpose of our study is for, is that we might deepen in our worship of God, that we might grow in our love for Christ. It's not just to accumulate knowledge. It's not to be puffed up in understanding, but so that we might love God more. Secondly, so that we might grow in humility, as Pastor Jason shared with us. That's the pursuit of the elders, pastors, and shepherds of our church. We want to be lowly. We want to be contrite. We want to be men and women who tremble before the Word of God. We want to grow in humility. And thirdly, we want to grow in our unity with one another. Fellow leaders, and as, as a church, we want to grow in unity. We need, we desperately need revival in our church. Individually and corporately, we need reformation. And we would love just to jump in and uh, pursue these things. But before we do that, it requires a right understanding of the scriptures. True revival, true reformation is impossible without right interpretation. The opposite is true. True revival requires a right interpretation of the Word of God because the power of God's Word is not in the words itself. You know, I used to think that when I was a young believer, I believed that the power of the Scriptures were in the Scriptures themselves. So I meditate on the Word of God. I memorized the Word of God. I quoted the Word of God. I didn't give thought to the interpretation, but I thought as long as I filled my mind with God's Word, it would help me to grow as a Christian. It was, many, it was not until many years later that I was taught that the power of God's Word is not in the words themselves, in some mystical way that these words have power, the power of God's Word is in the right understanding of God's Word. Right? The name Jesus in of itself has no power. A lot of guys, especially in my parents' store, we have customers named Jesus, named Jesus. There's no power in that name. There's no mystical magic in that name. The power is in the doctrine behind that name. The second person, the Trinity, you know, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, immutable, thrice holy, sovereign God, incarnate in flesh, humbled himself as a man, died of a carrier substitutionary death on our behalf, and was raised on the third day, ascended into heaven, as at the right hand of the throne of the king, returning one day to take us home. I mean, that's the power that grants us salvation and sanctification, not in the, that name itself. And so... For us to have true revival, reformation in our hearts, for us to deepen our worship of God, to grow in humility, and to grow in unity with the church, yes, we want to just jump in and pursue these things, but we must pause and do some mundane, quote-unquote, scholarly work of 
seeing the necessity of biblical right interpretation of the Bible. Apart from it, we will not be nourished in the faith. I mean, uh, let me illustrate um, just briefly an uh, illustration that, that I gave during John 17 study, how uh, China is known for many fake products, fake shoes, fake, uh, you know, fake Nikes, fake Adidas, fake purses, fake electronics, fake software, where recently there was fake baby formula sold to the public. Uh, mom gave um, her son um, uh, Grasslands baby milk powder. Uh, by February, a few months later, his head started to puff up. Skin turned bright red and glossy. Eyes were reduced to slits. What the family initially thought were healthy signs of him gaining weight, it was actually their son's tiny, malnourished body screaming out for help. It turned out that several brands of infant formula sold in their province in central China were fake and contained almost no nutritional value. Another mother also unknowingly fed her daughter the fake formula within a month. She was dead. Officially, 13 babies died. 170 suffered serious malnutrition because they were drinking fake milk powder. Officials say the toll is almost certainly much higher. This fake milk powder was sold locally for over two years. And moms and dads as well unknowingly fed um, this to their children and many suffered and many died. Analysis found the actual ingredients to be nothing more than starch, flour, and sugar, not containing necessary nourishment, minerals, vitamins that babies need. And so many families suffer because of this. Well, this criminal act, in a sense, spiritual sense, is done in the church today. Believers are doing it to themselves. They're feeding themselves things that do not nourish, that do not build up, that do not sanctify. Knowingly or unknowingly, they're feeding themselves junk food rather than the pure milk of God's Word. And this criminal act of giving out food that, that does not nourish is being done by pastors, knowingly and unknowingly, giving to the church junk food that, that does not save, that does not sanctify. Because the power of God's Word is not just reading God's Word or preaching God's Word or memorizing God's Word. The power is in, its, in the interpretation. And so, so as MacArthur said, the meaning is the Word. So if you have the wrong meaning, wrong interpretation, you don't have the Bible. You don't have the Scriptures. You don't have truth. In fact, if you don't have the truth, what do you have? You have error. You have error. That's why Pastor Piper said, interpreting the Bible is one of the most important issues facing Christians today. It lies behind what we believe, how we live, how we get on together, and what we have to offer to this world. He said it is one of the most important, and I agree. We can't have this simplistic mindset. You know, what if we just love Jesus? What if our hearts are right? You know, what's all this hermeneutics, exegesis, you know, homiletics? Come on! Doctrine and theology. Let's just love God. And let's, have a, let's grow deeper in love with Jesus. And let's love the world. Right? What's all, with all this study? Because 
apart from study, um, how do you know how to love God? How do you know if you're praying rightly? How do you know you're worshiping in a way, manner, pleasing to the Lord? How do you know the gospel you're sharing is indeed the gospel of Scripture or a false gospel? A heresy made up by man. It's only through right interpretation of Scripture. So this leads us to the first point of why Bible interpretation is so important. The first reason is right interpretation of the Bible is essential to a right understanding, right teaching, and right application. It's in your outlines there. Right interpretation of the Bible is essential to a right understanding, right teaching, and right application. Remember, head to our hearts, to our hands. You know, that's what Ryan was saying from about studying Galatians with Joe. How he was repeatedly sinning, and to stop sinning was not to try harder, was not just merely self-control. It's not outside in. He had to control his hands, and that work starts in the head, head to heart to hands. Do you want to change behavior? It begins with the renewing of our minds. Romans 12.1 Begins with the Word of God. A right understanding of the Word of God. Renewing our minds. Transforming our minds. That changes our desires. That ultimately changes our behavior. It's inside out, not outside in. So to live rightly, one must have a right understanding of God. And a right understanding of God is not possible without the right interpretation of the scriptures without the right interpretation of scriptures that is why genuine sanctification is beyond the reach of so many Christians because they have a faulty methodology of studying the Bible they have this quiet time methodology where they open the Bible and they try to experience the Bible right they try to like have this Isaiah 6 experience of the scriptures. I went to a church and I pre- preached that Isaiah 6 and the sovereignty and holiness of God and they didn't know what to do with it. Afterwards, they had, they turned on the lights, they had, they pr- had prayer time, you know, kind of a charismatic flavor, calling out to God. But because what I preached was doctrine and theology, they didn't know how to respond to God's sovereignty and God's holiness. They tried to experience God's sovereignty. They're trying to experience God's holiness, experience a vision of God. When my servant was not, you don't experience God's sovereignty. You don't have this, you don't get zapped with God's holiness. You understand God's sovereignty. You, 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 you embrace and understand and accept the profundity of God's holiness, His separateness from us, and repent of our unholiness. It's not some experience, but because believers have a faulty methodology with interpretation, True sanctification is beyond their reach. And then many well-meaning Christians go to these churches and they have sermons. You know, when God gives you lemons, make lemonade. You know, or like we're all crackpots here. And they give sermonettes for Christianettes. Like three-point sermons with a lot of stories, a lot of meeting felt needs, but they're not interpreting the Bible. They're not giving the whole counsel of God's Word. So whether they feed themselves or they're fed of the church, they're not growing in Christ. They're not overcoming sin. They're not growing maturity because of lack of right interpretation. This happened in Kentucky uh, a few weeks ago, right? Um, I actually saw on TV uh, this couple got married in Kentucky, I believe, 
and they had their video camera, they're filming their, you know, reception, their, you know, beautiful couple just got married, going on their honeymoon, they got on this plane, and the pilot made a fatal wrong decision. He lined up to the wrong runway. He should have lined up in the runway to the left, I guess, where it's longer for that kind of plane, but he lined up on a runway that was too short, and the plane didn't have enough runway to, to take off the ground and the plane crashed and everyone died except the co-pilot. And so this brand new married couple died on their way to the honeymoon. Why? Because a pilot made a fatal mistake. He interpreted his instruments wrong. He interpreted the map wrong. So in any human level, wrong interpretation can cause tragic consequences. Well, similarly in the spiritual realm, similarly in the spiritual realm, if you have a misinterpreted gospel, the gospel you believe in does not save. Does not save you. If you, have a, if you believe in a gospel that is works-based, that is not based on the cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith, for example, the deity of Christ, the Trinity, I salvation by faith alone, the gospel you believe doesn't save you. You're still in your sins. Not only that, the gospel you preach to others are damning people and leading people astray into a wide gate. You're preaching peace, peace, safety, safety when there is no peace, when there is no safety and you are a false teacher. You are a heretic. Now, as a Christian, if you have wrong understanding about wrong, a faulty methodology, then you are living your life in a manner not worthy of Christ, not honoring to Christ. God looks at us, God looks at you, and if your interpretation is wrong, God is not pleased. Because you're not motivated by Scripture, by truth. You're motivated by something else. It's either self-righteousness, it's either legalism, moralism, or pride, or some other ism, but it's not Scripture. It's not truth. Right? The church is full of believers who are old but not mature. Sincere believers, but they lack genuine godliness. They have zeal but no power. What is the reason? It's because they have a wrong methodology or wrong interpretation of the scriptures. Second reason why Bible interpretation is so important is that Everyone is already an interpreter of the scriptures. Again, like last week, you can't opt out of this. You can't say, well, Pastor James, this is for you guys, you book guys, right? You guys who love books. You know, I'm a heart guy. I'm a doer, not a thinker, right? I'm, a, I'm, I'm hands on the plow. I'm a work, I'm a missionary, I'm an evangelist. You guys get in your library and, you know, drink your coffee and study. I'm going to do the real work of gospel ministry. Well, you don't understand. You, it's not an option for you. Everybody interprets the Bible. Right? When you open the Bible and read it, you, you have an interpretation of that text. It's inescapable. It's unavoidable. The only question is, do you have a right interpretation or a wrong interpretation? Either you're going the right way or the wrong way. Right? You can't opt out of this. You're either going in the right direction or in the wrong direction. Your theology that, or your doctrine, your paradigm is either consistent with the scriptures or it is inconsistent. And you know what? If it's inconsistent with the scriptures, 
This is what um, Job 42.7, God said. This is what Yahweh said to Job. God said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have spoken of me what is not right. You have not represented me in the right way. Therefore, I am angry with you. Do we realize... I mean, interpret the, the Bible as the revelation, the apocalypse of God. And therefore, if we have a wrong understanding of God's word, we are concepting, of, our conception of God is idolatrous, and we are propagating a wrong conception of God. And the consequence of that is that God is angry with you. It's angry with me. Wouldn't you be angry? If someone misrepresented you, right? You said something, and someone twisted your words, and, and put you on a bad light, or cause you to be misunderstood by your family and friends, you would say, hey, you're misrepresenting me. That's not right. I'm angry with you. You should rightly represent who I am. You know, as sinful human beings, do we not have a sense of honor and dignity of, our, of ourselves where we want to be represented in the right way? Well, how much more God? And yet, if we misrepresent God with wrong interpretation, God is angry with us. God is angry with us. And we... That should fear us. Right? That should cause us to fear and tremble before the Word of God. Third reason is because it is the command of God. It's described in Acts and it's prescribed in the epistles. Acts 17.11, the description of the Bereans is that they are more noble than the Thessalonians because they heard Apostle Paul preach and they examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. They took ownership of their own theology and of their own doctrine to the point where they tested the Apostle Paul. Do you realize if somebody, give you a, somebody gives you a hundred dollar, a counterfeit hundred dollar bill, you are responsible for accepting that counterfeit hundred dollar bill. And, and FBI comes and they find that it's counterfeit, they take that hundred dollar bill from you and they don't reimburse you. You lose a hundred dollars. You accept a thousand dollar bill, you use that thousand, you lose it. You're like, wait, I was deceived. Well, you are responsible for taking that money and, and, and it's up to you to be discerning of a, of a right bill and a wrong bill, the counterfeit bill, right? You don't get reimbursed. Well, likewise with Scripture, right? right? Ultimately, you stand before God and you can't say, I was just following Pastor James. It's all on him, right? Can't say that, you know? Man, my, my flock shepherd, that guy, I knew something was wrong, you know, when... He was studying 10 minutes before Bible study. I knew I should have known better, but it's his fault. No, we stand before God because whatever theology we have, we accepted it and we are, we are, we are responsible. Right? So Bereans understood that. They tested the great Apostle Paul and therefore Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. Timothy, do your best. Give yourself, give your utmost to cutting straight the word of God. Right? Handling it accurately. Interpreting it rightly. That must be our foremost pursuits in life because that's why this is part two. Last week was his importance. This is really the beginning of the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith because this is the foundation. Right? You set the course wrong here. You end up, you know, miles away, miles off course. You gotta start here. 
Right? So you've got to give your best right interpretation. A rigorous, serious study. Is there any other kind of, of studying in the Bible? A rigorous study, a serious study, because this will set the course for the rest of your theology, rest of your doctrine, and of course, rest of your life, your family, your ministry. All of it is dependent upon interpretation. Before we move on, let's define these terms. Define just some of these... Um, Words based on the Greek, hermeneutics. Hermeneutics, try that at the spelling bee. Uh, the science, principles, and art task by which the meaning of the biblical text is determined. Principles and task. Exegesis, the determination of the meaning of the biblical text in its historical and literary context. The determination of the meaning of the biblical text in its historical and literary context. Homiletics, the science, principles, and art task by which the meaning and relevance of the biblical text are communicated in a preaching situation. The science, principles, and art task by which the meaning and relevance of the biblical text are communicated in a preaching situation. Let me give you a bad illustration. It doesn't really fit. That's the best I have, so what can I do, right? So, the game of basketball, Right? Hermeneutics are the rules of the game. Hermeneutics are principles, rules of interpretation. So in basketball, you can't dribble with two hands. You can't take four steps. You can't, you know, hit a guy across the face when he's driving for a layup. These are the rules of the game. So hermeneutics are the rules of interpretation. Exegesis is the actual playing of the game. Exegesis, exo, drawing out. You're actually doing the work of study according to the rules. That's playing basketball. Right? You're playing the game. You're exegeting the game. You're playing the game. Homiletics is how you do it. Right? It's the science and art of communicating in a preaching situation. So you can score two shot, score two points with a jump shot, layup, you know, slam dunk, if you can slam, you know with a 20-foot set shot, but you can do it with a little bit of flair. You can do it with a little bit of you know, gusto. Likewise, you have the rules of hermeneutics, and you exegete the text, but how you deliver, whether in the pulpit, in a one-to-one setting, in a small group, in a classroom setting, there's different packaging, different introduction, different format, different style of even delivery. That's homiletics. Those three are key definitions. Just a few more. Exposition is communication of the meaning of the text along with its relevance to present day hearers. Communication of the meaning of the text along with its relevance to present day hearers. You're expositing scripture. You are drawing the meaning out and, and, and declaring the meaning of the text. Literal interpretation is interpreting a passage in its plainest sense. Interpreting a passage in its plainest sense. This method can be called the historic, literal, historical, grammatical method of interpreting the, the Word of God. Uh, it can be also called simply the literal method. Luther argued that a proper understanding of what a passage teaches comes from a literal interpretation. Take the plainest meaning of the text. We'll talk more about this later. 
Now, before we actually get to the source and the actual principles of interpretation, sometimes it's helpful to look at the negative to see the positive, to look at how not to do something, um, to see how to do something rightly. So let's consider uh, three most common erroneous methods in interpreting the Bible. How not to study the Bible. Three most common improper methods, approaches in interpreting the Bible. The most common is the allegorical approach. Allegorical approach. Um, this is, I guess, the Da Vinci method, right? Or it's the Bible code method. Or it's the interpreting the white parts of your Bible, right? The spaces in between the black letter letters. Um, it's, uh, it's the approach, it, it, it's the method used to uncover hidden meaning in the text or symbolic meaning of a biblical text. Right? It assumes that the, the, the literal meaning is just the basic meaning. The true meaning is the one that underlies the text. That's hidden. And that's the true meaning. The true meaning is, is hidden to novice Christians, you know, like regular Christians. You guys are blind to the true meaning, but to the, to the advanced, to the mature, to the spiritually enhanced, to those who have a special relationship with God, they have and know the hidden meaning, and therefore their meaning is not to be questioned, but just accepted. Right. The historical meaning is insignificant. The deeper hidden meaning is a true meaning. An example of an allegor- allegorical interpretation is the Good Samaritan. Um, the allegorical interpre- interpretation says that the traveler is the sinner, right? And he's beaten up and he's left on the way. That's the result of his sin. The Samaritan, who is that person? He really is the is Christ. Right? Samaritan are mixed breeds, right? Jews and, and Canaanites. Jesus Christ was fully God, fully man. He's mixed, right? The apostolic union of Christ. Samaritan is Jesus Christ. And that Samaritan put oil, and, oil on the body and gave him wine. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the blood of Christ, right? And that uh, Samaritan uh, went to this inn, uh, and that's the church. And talked to the innkeeper. Who is that? That's the pastor, and he gave him two silver coins as down payment for this man to be healed. Or those two silver coins? What is the deposit? It's the Holy Spirit. Wow, that makes sense. That's great. I like that, right? It all fits together. But you read the context of that passage, and it's, what is that passage about? Wrong interpretation. No, that's good. <laughs> right, right. Love your neighbor. Right? Who was the two greatest commandments? Love God, love your neighbor. Of course, a lawyer would say, but, you know, who is my neighbor? Let's define that term. He says, who's your neighbor? Let me tell you a story. The Samaritan, this half-breed, this man who is reviled, outcast of your society, who is in need of your help. He's your neighbor. And that's the illustration, the parable that Christ gives. It's not all these things. You see how allegorical approach makes it just everything relative. There's no authority. It's all, it's all just, it's chaos. It's just so relative that there is no uh, principal truth 
and the way to understand uh, the allegorical uh, um, conclusion. That's why Martin Luther said, when I was a monk, I was an expert in allegories. I allegorized everything. But after lecturing on Romans, I came to have knowledge of Christ, for therein I saw that Christ is no allegory. And I learned to know what Christ is. And he saw firsthand the evil consequences of allegorizing Scripture. Because you're promoting error. You're leading people astray. You're teaching error. Right? Therefore, he said to allegorize is to juggle the Scripture. Origins, allegories are not worth so much as dirt. Allegories are empty spe- speculations and as it were, the scum of Holy Scripture. Allegories are awkward, absurd, invented, obsolete, loose rags. Allegory is a sort of beautiful harlot who proves herself specially seductive to lazy men. Right? If you're a lazy man, man you love allegorizing. Because you can do it on the spot. You can just you know, wing it. You off the cuff, open your Bible and start allegorizing. It requires no discipline. Right? favorite uh, method for lazy men. The Bible treated allegorically becomes putty in the hands of the exegete. The scriptures are to be retained in their simplest meaning ever possible and to be understood in their grammatical and literal sense unless the context plainly forbids it. The second most common improper approach to interpreting the Bible is subjectivism. Private interpretation. So this is that common Bible study approach where you get into a small group and they go around. What does this verse mean to you? What does this verse mean to you? And this verse means seven different things to seven different people. And they all have different interpretations and they are all right. right? They're all interpretations that are all right. Well, that's subjectivism. Right? Personal perspective. You know, They use the word, I feel this verse means this. So I know it's just a way of communicating, you know, a sense, you know, what, what they're thinking. But I mean, that kind of gives a, a sense where, like, that's their subjective experience with this verse, and this is their feeling. So feelings aren't right or wrong, right? We talk with our wives, and they tell us feelings aren't right or wrong. That's their feeling. Yes, that's right. We learned this as husbands, and so we take this to the hermeneutical level. Well, if you feel this verse means this, how can I say you're wrong? That's what you feel. Well, you are wrong, because we don't feel a verse. You have a right to your interpretation. You have a right, you have the authority to subjectively interpret this verse, but is it right? Is it correct? Is it accurate? Is it consistent with the Bible? It's either accurate or inaccurate. It's either truth or error. Uh, your feeling is right or wrong. Uh, but if, you, if it means to you what it never meant to anyone else, more than likely it is... Um, Erroneous. And third is proof texting. Proof texting, setting up a thesis and using scripture to support your thesis. Alright? Setting a thesis. I got the danger of topical sermons. You can use the Bible to support anything. Right? You rip, rip verses out of context. You rip like, clauses or phrases out of context. Right? And you can use a Bible to support you know, racism, communism, right? I mean, every outrageous uh, wind of doctrine can be supported by uh, proof texting, right? 
Let's move on to the source of our hermeneutical principles, the source of our rules governing our interpretation of the Bible. Who came up with the rules? Who made up the rules on how to interpret the Bible? Like rules of basketball, who made up those rules? Dr. Naismith, right? What about interpreting the Bible? Who came up with it? The rules of Bible, biblical hermeneutics are not special rules developed to be used only for the Bible. They're not special rules. These are rules that are used to interpret all forms of communication. These are the same rules that we use to interpret all forms of communication. The resounding principle of interpretation is simply this. That the Bible is to be interpreted in the same manner as all other books. As all other books. And there are definitely inherent challenges to the Bible because, you know, different time, different geography, right, different language, different culture. There are bridges that we must gap. So it's like studying an ancient text. When you read, you know, when you, you women read Jane Austen or when you guys, you know, read the sports section of another city, right? <laughs> when you're traveling and you're reading like Phoenix sports section, you understand, well, I'm not in Los Angeles anymore. They're not going to have Lakers in the cover. Or, when the Lakers play the Suns, right, it's all biased towards the Suns. They're going to be, it's a sad account of their loss, the Lakers. If we're in LA, it's a happy account. Or the ladies, when you read Jane Austen, or Pride and, you know, Pride and Prejudice, well, the language is different. Well, you know, the, the culture is different. Men and women relationship is different. Well, you understand, this is not a modern text. It's, you know, over a hundred years old, so you need to bridge that gap. Likewise, there are unique challenges to interpret the Bible, but apart from that, you interpret the Bible just like you interpret any other text. Whether it's um, Time Magazine, LA Times, you know, your, your Zenga blogs, right? Whatever you read, you use literal, grammatical, historical interpretation. You just don't know it, but that's how you, you, you read, that's how you interpret. Likewise with the Bible. And so this gives us insight to where the rules of hermeneutics originated. These are not the artificial production of skill. They are not the product of some science in a laboratory. These rules of hermeneutics was not given to us at the Ten Commandments. Like God didn't give us two tablets of the Ten Commandments and also give us a third tablet with how to interpret the Ten Commandments. Right? No, these rules are within us. We are born with these rules because God created us as communicative beings and communication, literal communication, is in our nature. From the first moment where we communicate with our parents, we use literal communication. When we said to our parents, no, right? We, we didn't want our parents to allegorize that. To subjectivize that. To you know, use proof texting. I want you to understand me literally. No to broccoli. Right? <laughs> no to soy milk. Whatever. And, and when, when we said yes to our children, do they understand? Like a two-year-old? Maybe a year and a half? One year old? Do they understand? Your singles have no idea. But parents know. Moms know. They understand. Why? How do they understand? How come they're not, like, how come you have to spiritualize it? You don't, like some mystic, they have to experience your yes, right? No, they understand yes, because 
communication, those rules of literal grammatical historical grammar is within us. We were born with it. That's why when you teach a child to speak, you don't have to teach them hermeneutics. You just teach them words. Teach them to, you just communicate around them and they process it and they communicate literally. Because that's how God created us. And that's why when God gave, revealed Himself to us, He revealed Himself through words, through logos. Not through drama, not through pictures, not through images, not through some art, but through words because He gave us that inherent ability. We are made in the image of God and that's part of our our our. our core essence. It's a native art and skill. It's not a foreign science or a foreign skill that needs to be acquired. No, it is in, innate in us. Right? Innate, innate in us. And so the literal, grammatical, historical is just the plain way of interpreting the Bible. Right? So all of us. That's why a one-day-old Christian can read the Bible. Right? They don't need like cliff notes. They don't need like to go to some classes before they, you know, or some priest to kind of oversee their interpretation. They can understand the Bible. If they can read, right? They can go to if they're in elementary school. They can read, you know, see Cat Run, whatever. They can read the Bible, understand it, and it's so profound. A theologian could drown in it because the profundity has there's no limit. Well, to our final part, let's move on to. The nine general theological principles of hermeneutics. These are <coughs> an outgrowth of literal, grammatical, hermen- uh, historical. Based on a literal interpretation of scripture, these are nine general theological principles that come from a literal understanding of the Bible. Right. Nine principles. First of all, the clarity of the scriptures. The clarity of the scriptures, also called the perspicuity of the scriptures. Perspicuity. The Bible is indeed an ancient book, a very large book, and a book with many perplexing passages. First Corinthians 15:29 about this baptism of the dead. I've, I've heard that there are over 38 possible interpretations for that verse, and therefore many have challenged the supposed clarity of the scriptures, and the Roman Catholic Church's solution was to teach that both Christ and the Holy Spirit mystically indwelt in the Roman Church, and therefore the Roman Church had exclusively the mind of Christ, and it alone has the authority to know the intended meaning of the scriptures. You want to know what the Bible says? The Bible is not clear. The Bible is confusing. Bible is obscure. Therefore, disbelieve the church. The church's interpretation is correct. The reformers rejected this view. Martin Luther, in the bondage of the will, determined the Protestant principle of the clarity of the scriptures. He spoke of the external and the internal clarity of the Bible. His answer is fundamental for the practice of biblical hermeneutics. External clarity, he's talking about the grammatical clarity. That the scriptures were written within the laws of language, laws of grammar. Therefore, a verb in the Bible is a verb. A noun is a noun, an adjective, an adjective, a subject is also a subject. 
that the Bible follows the laws of common grammar. Therefore, if an interpreter properly follows laws of language, simple grammar, right? Subject, verb, object, he can know the meaning of the text. If he just literally, another word is normally, reads and interprets, he can know the meaning of the text. Doesn't need the church to interpret it for him. The, the meaning is clear because of the external clarity of the scriptures. And then he talks about the internal clarity. Refers to the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the believer. The Holy Spirit does not inspire the believer, but the Holy Spirit grants him illumination, opens his eyes to see the wonderful things that are in the law, gives him insight, gives him understanding, gives him internal clarity. The Holy Spirit illumines the mind of the believer to acknowledge and understand the truths of Scripture. No doubt there are numerous passages that are publishing puzzling and unclear. There are the whole issue about head coverings. We'll get to it one day in 1 Corinthians 11. Right? The whole issue about eschatology, pre, post, mid-trip, pre-wrath. It is difficult. But does not minimize the great clarity that, that exists in the cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith. The deity of Christ. There's no confusion there. Right? Right? Salvation by faith alone. Lordship, salvation. I mean, election. That's what Ryan was saying. Right? People say, oh, election is so confusing. It's so hard. It's so difficult to understand. No, it's not. I mean, Romans 8, 9, 10. Ephesians 1. 1 Peter 1. I mean, it's, it's just, it's really clear. It's, it's, in a sense, very simple. Difficult to accept. Right? Because of our pride. But in of itself, it's very simple. So there are obscure passages, but None of them affect our salvation and none of them directly affect our sanctification. And lack of clarity can often be overcome by diligent study. The reason it's confusing is because we like amusement. We like 30 second sound bites. We don't, we like like these words, let go and let God, you know? We don't like theological study. We don't like laborious uh, discipline, meditation of the Word of God. We like the sermonettes. That is why there's so much confusion in our minds, lack of clarity, because clarity requires effort and diligence. But if you and I put time in, it'll become more and more clear. And that's the experience, right? Things become more clear. Like scripture becomes clearer. Uh, our lives become clearer. Our families become clearer. The world makes more sense as you study the Bible more. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. It comes together, but requires diligent effort. We know this to be true, that there's great unity in the carnal doctrines because there's so much unity around the world, from different culture, different background, different experiences. Great unity because the Bible is so clear. The Bible is so clear about the carnal doctrines. We must move on. The accommodation of revelation. The accommodation of revelation. God gave the scriptures in a way that the truth of God can be understood by the human mind. God gave us the Bible in a way that, in a way, so that we can understand the Bible. God accommodated His truth so that man is able to interpret it. 
scriptures were written in a human context, in a social environment, and its analogies are drawn from that environment. God accommodated His truth in a way that, so that we can understand it in simple terms. I mean, uh, uh, the teachings of Christ are filled with uh, such accommodations. Um, when Christ tries to explain and have us understand what the kingdom of God is like. What, what a rich ther- term in the Gospel of Matthew. What is the kingdom of God? How did he illustrate, how did he communicate, explain to us uh, what the kingdom of God is like? Right? What, did he, what did he say? Kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Right? Kingdom of God is like a pearl of great price. It's like a great treasure hidden in a field. My favorite one, the kingdom of God is a wedding banquet, a place of joy, and a place of celebration. Right. Let's go, well, you know, let's end here. Right. Just, uh, we've covered so much. Um, I'll do part two. Right. Part two in two weeks. Well, maybe I'll have Pettigrew finish this off next week. But part two. Uh, keep, keep your notes, and we'll continue, we'll finish next time. Um, on our study of hermeneutics. Let's pray. Father, we understand that interpretation is not merely a human effort. It is a spiritual work. We know many men who are far more intelligent, far more disciplined, far more studious than than us, and yet they interpret the Bible wrongly, and they are false teachers. They have led themselves astray, and they are leading others astray. And some are teaching heresy. They are sending themselves and others um, to a course of life that is set on fire by hell. So we know it's not um, dependent on our intelligence or our effort. Really, it's we really need your grace. We're wholly dependent upon the Holy Spirit. We need um, your help to understand rightly the Word of God. We know that Christ preached in parables, so that he would not give pearls to pigs, that these wonderful truths would be hidden as a way of judgment to these proud people who refuse to repent and submit themselves to you. And yet, the meaning of these parables were revealed to those who are lowly, who are filled with sin, who are outcasts of society, because they were humble before you. And so these proud religious men were filled with even greater pride and indignation when these, quote, sinners drew near to Christ, understanding Christ's truths. And yet their eyes were blind, their ears were dull, their hearts were hardened, and they were unable to understand. That's the dual nature of the Word of God. And Lord, we pray that we will not be found to be proud in your sight, that in our stubbornness, in our pride, that you will withdraw the scriptures from us and that one day we open the Bible and our hearts are cold. 
one day we read the scriptures and we don't understand it. Or that one day when we hear the word of God preached, it does nothing to our hearts. Lord, that kind of judgment is the worst kind because the word of God is the only hope for salvation and for growth. Oh Lord, may we never test you in this way by having such a low view of the Bible that we hold in our hands. Lord, take away our lives, take away our families, take away all our possessions, but never ever, oh Lord, take away the Bible from us and never ever take away a right understanding, a right interpretation of the Bible, the faith that was passed on to you, to us once for all. Oh Lord, may we not devalue and demean its worth. Help us to treasure it so that you might grant us open eyes, open ears, and humble hearts. So help us, O Lord, to see that it is a spiritual work, that Peter calls us to put away all our sinfulness, to put away pride, to put away evil, so that we might feast, and we might feed upon the pure milk of God's word, that we cannot feed upon your word while sin remains in our hearts. So Lord, we confess our sins to you. Lord, we repent of these things. And Lord, grant us um, to taste uh, the sweetness of the Word of God, sweeter than the honey from the comb. Help us to see and, and savor how precious the Word of God is, more than gold, more than much precious gold. And may that be um, the daily pursuit in our lives, pursuing wisdom from the Scriptures, uh, pursuing a right understanding of the Word of God. Or may you grant that to us so that true reformation might be within our grasp. That true love for you, true humility, and true unity uh, that you would grant to us through the Word of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.